Welcome to the Cardio Metabolic Health Podcast, where we teach you how to navigate the complex world of diet and exercise with medical and pragmatic views of the human body. Join Dr. Andrew Appleton and me as we give you the tools and resources to prevent and reverse lifestyle-driven diseases while optimizing fitness and getting the body you want. Enjoy today's episode. A lot, of, a lot of egg cartons you have over here. <laughs> yeah. Were well, you were you egging other businesses no, nearby? Yeah, I mean we're looking at new new strategies <laughs> in the uh, in the updated current business world. So I've uh, I've taken the approach of <clears throat> rather than pumping up our brand, I'm just going to go and try and smear other people. That's the political Mix way it for up. sure. Yeah. yeah. Or you're doing the the Gaston thing and just <laughs> eating three dozen eggs every day. <laughs> That's right. That's it's. That's how I got my muscles. <laughs> okay, so I'll let you kick it off. We're recording, uh, and you want to talk about longevity, specific to uh, Dr. Peter Atia's brand and strategy for longevity, and he has a recent book that came out. Did you read his his book? Yeah, so the, the book is called Outlive. Uh, it was just released not too long ago. I, um, I listened to the audio version, yeah. which is, so my retention of that is probably 26%. Um, which is maybe better than reading, actually. I was going to say, <laughs> I, I find it depending on the circumstances, if I'm like if I'm listening to an audiobook while I'm working out or doing something like that, my retention is quite good. Yeah. Whereas uh, it's probably because of the age of social media. I find it more and more and more difficult to read uh, and have reading done in a way where I retain a lot of the information. And that probably has a lot to do with like, having kids too and it's impossible for me to be in an environment where I'm really sitting and reading a book whereas there's lots of transitional moments in my day where I could be listening to music doing something but instead I listen to like podcasts audiobooks things like that yeah I do exactly the same thing time is is such a premium and the only time I really have to, to read is typically before bed and that lasts for about one half page <laughs> yeah <laughs> before I'm out yeah so. same here and yeah. it, it, by the time the kids are in bed and Laura and I've spent a little bit of time together I don't even I don't read I don't pleasure read I don't read fiction books very yeah. often I no, read I've, because I've I pictured want to do like a sci-fi <laughs> fantasy yeah, I want to get something out of uh, out of it uh as far as you know getting some information that I find is, exactly. is useful for me and yeah. about the end of the day it's just not happening yeah so for for the audience who might not know so Peter Atia is um, he's a former surgeon oncology surgeon in the US uh, he's actually from Canada and then went and did his medical medical training down there uh, basically he ended up dropping out of of medicine because he <laughs> couldn't couldn't stand it went in to be a business consultant and then came back into medicine with this focus on longevity, health span, cardiometabolic health stuff. And a lot of that was just from his own personal experiences. Uh, so he, he's got a podcast called The Drive, which um, is great. I <laughs> highly, highly recommend it to people, although with the proviso that it's very technical. Yeah. For the average listener, it's probably not the best yeah. thing. It's so, impossible for him to, to dumb down yeah, his message. So I, I get a ton out of it. Um, and he's, so he, he interviews experts from from medicine and, and science on all of the different aspects of, of human health and um, and longevity. Um, but I think for for the average listener, it's it would be really difficult to take from that actionable things that you could implement in your daily life to optimize your health. 
so that's where this book is meant to fill that gap. So it's meant to make it more accessible to the general public. Uh, and the book Outlive, Outlive refers to longevity and living your longest, healthiest possible life uh, instead of the sort of t- typical setup, which is you go through life, uh, maybe don't necessarily focus a lot on health, and then by the time you're in your 60s and 70s, you're becoming more frail and sick and chronic disease, and you live your last decade uh, diseased and not nearly as functional and with a good quality of life. Yeah, and for most people, that that is the reality, not just the last decade of, of being sick and immobile and just you know slowly waiting to die. But I would say the last 30 to 40 years of most people's lives is a, is a very... Uh, is a very clear decline <clears throat> into a poor state of health where it's always something. And this is the issue with uh, with the chronic disease model replacing the acute disease model where, you know, we've gotten very good with whether it's, <clears throat> you know, someone breaks something or has uh, some sort of infection that would be otherwise deadly, you know, even just a, a hundred years ago. Now we're very good at treating those things, I would say, uh, with, uh, I, I don't think you could ask for a higher rate of success in, in in many of those instances, but now we have this chronic disease model, <clears throat> lifestyle driven for, for the vast majority of people where I if someone's even ever healthy, by the time they're 50, it's just every year is worse than the one before in a way that is probably measurable to most people. That's right. And that those are the people that I see in my outpatient practice. And then when they have acute complications, those are the people that I see in my inpatient practice. Uh, so ideally, that's what we want to prevent. So in, in the book, he lays out some some concepts that I think are interesting. So understanding that most people are not going to go and read this book, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is fine. I, I still think it's it's not maybe as accessible as it's marketed as in terms of can I just take the, the advice in here and automatically implement it into my life? No, you can't. It's more of a how should you be thinking about a framework for approaching optimizing your health? but then it's kind of up to you to take the responsibility and find the right people and resources to make it happen. And people are great at that stuff. You bet. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we keep talking about it. But so, <laughs> but one concept is the difference between medicine 2.0 and medicine 3.0, and that's basically what you're getting at uh, right there. So medicine 2.0 is the healthcare system that we all know and love today, which is you wait until somebody's sick, and then you treat them because we have good scientific evidence uh, and medicine. So 2.0 is you know better than what they had from Hippocrates days until maybe 150 years ago, which is all just sort of observation based with no real therapeutics or evidence. Bloodletting, leeches. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but now we had the scientific method and we had advancements and we were able to realize that infectious diseases were what was actually causing illness for a lot of things. So that led us to antibiotics and sanitation. And those two things alone probably account for most of the uh, increased lifespan of people from the early 1900s until now. Yeah, plus shelter. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So just like the normal developed infrastructure that, that we have. But in terms of the major diseases that cause death and disability, um, which Peter Atia calls the four horsemen, which are, oh, geez, now I have to remember what they are. So metabolic disease, heart disease, cancer, and dementia. Right. 
So we have done very little. Do people still call it dementia these days? I thought that was a <clears throat> an outdated and taboo term for oh, cognitive like de- neurodiverse or something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dementia is good, um, and particularly Alzheimer's dementia, which is the the most common version, which we've talked about before. So those are the the four things that medicine 2.0 has actually done very little to prevent. Uh, it's what it's done is allowed people to maybe live longer with those conditions, but they're still suffering from them and ultimately succumbing to them. So where the shift to medicine 3.0 comes in, which is where I and a handful of people would like to see us go is a focus on prevention and a focus on improving quality of life and using the evidence that we have to treat disease, but detecting it decades earlier so that people never have to develop type 2 diabetes in the first place because there's no reason that that should be happening on the scale that it's currently happening. Now, before <coughs> at risk of uh, derailing where where your your thought train is going here, does it matter if people can people learn something that they don't already know as far as doing these things this way as far as eating food, being inactive, I think people have a pretty good grasp of what can and likely will come if they don't change the way they currently behave. So what is it specifically you're talking about uh, with giving people early information that could lead to prevention? Because I don't think prevention is complicated, and I don't think the path to prevention is remotely unknown. And sometimes uh, specific data can, can be more motivating for people than the abstract idea of if I just keep eating and drinking and under-exercising this way, I'm going to succumb to these things. But we know that A plus B equals C already. And I would say most of the general population understands that as well. You know, eating fast food every day while sitting on my ass and being 150 pounds overweight, I I think most people understand where that goes. Yeah, if you sat down and, and you asked somebody point blank with the burger in their hand, is this a good thing that you're doing for your body? They would probably say, no, I know that it's not, if I'm being honest, but it doesn't stop them from doing it. And so this this is where probably like if I had one bone of contention with with a book like this, it's that it's it's really geared towards people who have the motivation, the resources, the money and the time to do these sorts of things and to seek out this sort of advice and to implement it into their life. But for most of the rest of the population, that doesn't seem like it's super viable. And that, I think, is where the biggest challenge lies, especially in something like a shift from thinking about a medicine 2.0 to 3.0. There is a massive, massive establishment of the way that we practice medicine, for example. So whenever I talk to a patient about, well, maybe we should think about starting lipid lowering therapy at an earlier stage than maybe the guidelines suggest until we wait until you're high risk, Why don't we do it now? Because we know that over the long run, this is going to lower your risk of bad outcomes. That is seen as not a reasonable thing to do by many practitioners in the traditional system. This is something that we need to push back on, and it's going to take a lot of time and effort for the buy-in to occur. 
But it doesn't take much of an argument to say that you know, with medications like Ozempic, for example, and using bariatric surgery to treat obesity and diabetes is hugely expensive, let alone the non-productivity associated with being disabled from chronic disease and not being able to participate in the workforce, we're going to bankrupt our society by just waiting for people to become diseased and then trying to look after them at the end or closer to the end of their life. Whereas if we invest now in a much more proactive, preventive approach at the population level, that's an investment for 30 years from now where hopefully we can have a much more prosperous society of healthy, tax-paying citizens. Certainly. And you and I, you and I come from, from quite different worlds, even though they're both related to health or related to health in, in very different ways. But at the risk of sounding cynical, I've, <laughs> I've, my point of view on the attitudes of people and, and where you try and meet them has, has evolved uh, over the years. Because 10, 10 years ago, up until let's say even just a few years ago, I spent so much time trying to reach, message, convince, educate people who I thought needed my kind of help the most and motivate them to, to begin the path to take, betting, uh, to take better care of themselves. And it's not that I would ever want to give up on that population, but at the same time, I got to the point where I had to ask myself, how long are you willing to just spin your tires with people where, you know, one in a hundred of them is actually going to make the transition rather than looking for the people who are already far along where they've already decided they're going to make changes. They've made some changes consistently, but now they have an opportunity to really take control of their health and take it to another level where it becomes an absolute lifestyle it's something they're completely comfortable with. They're exercising daily. They're making their own meals, <clears throat> and I've 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 changed. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I've changed my efforts towards finding those people who are already far enough long, along where I can I can really optimize or maximize the path that they're already on. But trying to get somebody off of path A of you know, disease and poor states of health and on to path B of moving in the right direction. That's incredibly challenging. And I have not, no matter how much time I have, I have spent and I've spent, I, I can't even imagine the amount of hours I've spent trying to figure out how to reach people from a behavior change perspective and get them to shift from one lane to the other. I, I just haven't been able to figure out that formula. And even the people who do go from, from, from path A to path B, it never seems it's because of something specific I've done. It's just been the right timing, a mixture of all these different things in their life that has created this paradigm shift that moves them into the other direction. And I feel like I'm more just happened to coincidentally be the person who's in this position in their life when they've decided for one reason or another, they're going, they're going to do another thing. And maybe that's Maybe that's ultimately what we're talking about is if we're if we're systematically giving people preventative opportunities, then whenever people more broadly, but at the very individual level, are are ready to make that shift, they have what they need in order to make that transition rather than right now, from from you know, taxpaying healthcare perspective, 
it's non-existent aside from you know updating a food pyramid every once in a while which is realistically just a way to like manage our agricultural supply that it is about trying to help people get healthy there isn't really any preventative action and when you look at from a dollars per dollars investment perspective it's 0.0001% of the budget that we spend on quote unquote health well I, yeah i mean you you looked at the um the federal budgets, the Ontario provincial budgets that were recently tabled, there's nothing in there about preventive health care whatsoever. No. Nothing. And, th- yeah, there's huge, huge priorities to try to shore up funding for mental health and primary care and just getting people a family doctor to begin with. Those are absolutely priorities. But, again, if we want to take the longer view, which is nearly impossible to convince politicians of, Yeah then I mean, that stuff just doesn't exist. Uh, if you do a keyword search in the OHIP schedule of benefits, which is the fee-for-service schedule that pays physicians, you search for the word preventive, then all you c- come up with are there are some preventive care bonuses accessible for family doctors in a group model for mammograms, pap smears, uh, colorectal cancer screening tests and flu shots that's it that's all so there's a little bit of a financial incentive to make sure that so much of their population and their practice gets access to those screening tools which is good and important uh, and certainly you know like in the book outlive cancer is one of those things that robs people of functional productive years of their life so detecting cancer earlier at a stage when it's uh, much more treatable or curable uh, is super important. And you know, we're, we're even not doing an amazing job of that. So there's just, there's so much room to move. But I think your point at, at the individual level, you really do have to work at the margins with people who are motivated and who have a bit of insight. So when I see people for a cardiometabolic health assessment, they're usually referred for, you know, just obesity is the only thing. They don't have any other medical conditions or if like it's a woman who's gone through menopause uh, and they're just going, oh, I I would like an assessment because I've just seen these changes. I've gained some weight. I'm having some symptoms and I want to know if there's anything I can do about it. Or you know what? My, My mom and dad just had major health problems. I watched them get sick with diabetes and ultimately have a heart attack and die. I don't want to end up that way. So is there something I can do about it? So it's those instances where you've got someone who is a captive audience who's motivated to make change and start to take control of their health. So if you can strike <laughs> while the iron's hot, then that's great. And then we we do our workup and you can really see the lights come on when somebody, when you take them through everything, it's like, you know what, you do have insulin resistance and your blood pressure is slightly elevated and your ApoB cholesterol is also elevated. So you're looking at all these things together. There's a ton of th- stuff we can do now before you ever develop those diseases that are going to ultimately shorten your lifespan. Well, this is a question that that I think it's important to ask. You may or may not have an answer to, but I always wonder... <laughs> how much of these chronic diseases is a product of the fact that we are now living longer because of those other things that we already talked about. There's a clear connection between diet and all of those things, Um, heart disease, 
certain types of cancers, certainly metabolic disorders. And even now, we're understanding more about the connection between diet and, uh, and disorders of the brain, like Alzheimer's. And I'm, uh, there's no doubt a contribution there <clears throat> and perhaps uh, acceleration. But I also wonder, even with someone with the perfect diet and exercise plan who's been active their entire lives in appropriate doses and eats well, has a whole foods diet, like that person's still going to die from something. And I find it very hard to believe that if the entire population lived their lives that way, we would see nothing but, quote, natural deaths. That we wouldn't see any heart disease. We wouldn't see any neurological disorders. We wouldn't see any uh, any cancers. That, that seems completely unreasonable. So I wonder how much of an impact it will actually have with these diseases, uh, well, it's, it's especially not, with final outcome. It's not to say that you'll never have these things happen. But the goal of longevity and health span focused care is to shorten the amount of time at the end of your life that are afflicted by those things. So if you can live healthier for longer and get the most out of your life, and then in, say, the last few years, which might be now in your 90s rather than in your 70s, if you've done everything, I don't, I don't like to ter- use the term right, but if you've done everything to push, Why that, not? To push <laughs> that back. You're saying there's no objective right or wrong? <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, if you've done all that, then you you might have bought yourself two extra decades of your life in a good functional status where you get to enjoy your time with loved ones and family and see your grandkids and get to play with them and go on trips and do those things that you maybe didn't have a, an opportunity to do early in your life. And you can do that independently. Like that's that's what we're aiming for. It's not to say that ultimately you're, you you won't succumb to heart disease because if you live long enough, then it'll get you eventually. If you live long enough with you give yourself enough cellular divisions and mutation opportunities, that's going to turn into a growth at some point. You can't push it out forever. Humans are probably not going to live, you know, 120 plus on average for a really long time to come and the earth will probably explode long before that. But <laughs> that's okay. So it's, yeah, it's not about never having these things and we shouldn't think that way, but it's about how do you live the longest, healthiest, most functional life that you can and set yourself up for that. So yeah, like exercise is hard and it takes motivation to to work out especially if you're doing heavy weights or if you're doing something that's pushing your VO2 max, that's difficult. And especially if you're tired and you're busy, you've got other things on the go, but it's not, you're not doing it for you today. You're doing it for you 40 years from now. Well, let me stop you there because I think people should be doing it for them today. Okay. (laughs) As far as uh, what, if you can't find a motivation to do something that might be difficult, but good for you, if you can't find the motivation to do it in the moment, Good luck keeping it up thinking the reward is 40 years down the road. And that's why people who who were introduced to athletics at a younger age or uh, had at least one parent who who cooked within the household typically have it much more easy than people who didn't have those things because – when you don't come by exercise and healthy eating naturally and you just feel like you don't have the any of the tools to even begin 
then it's it's pretty daunting. But if if something you know exercise is the easiest example, like if you're an athlete and you enjoyed athletics as a kid, <clears throat> chances are you're going to seek something out for the rest of your life because it's 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 an integrated part of your lifestyle. And most people don't transition into sports and activities as adults primarily or solely because they're always trying to lose weight or they're always trying to have XYZ body. They do it because they found another way, whether it's just, you know, expression of their own movement, where it's uh, having some sense of, of friendly competition in their life or the camaraderie that comes with being on a team and, and seeing the same group of people every single week in that environment. Like to me, those are the things that make something something stick for somebody. And I know that you weren't you weren't trying to say contrary to that. But I think it's important for people to understand the point that if you can't find a reason to be motivated and find some element of joy in what you're doing now, then there's nobody's going to torture themselves every single day as a means to an end to not having Alzheimer's. So you're saying <laughs> you need to be a little a little bit masochistic at times. No, for sure. I, you, I, have to, I totally you have to agree. find value in the action or what's or why would you do it? I totally agree. You need to find the joy in movement. And when, when I talk to people about exercise, I always ask them, what what do you like to do? Like what's your preferred method of, of exercise? If it's, it, even if it's just going for a walk, that's great. Or And some people will say, I prefer you know, lifting weights rather than doing cardio, which is most often the case. Uh, great. So we need to take that and use that as, as fuel to do something that's that you look forward to doing. Because if you actually look forward to doing it and you plan around that, you book it for yourself, you show up and do it, then absolutely your your life now is going to benefit from that. And your future self will thank you when you get there. Yeah, and you just scale with doing the thing you like more, more frequently, for longer durations, or with more intensity. And that's the yeah. only way you have to scale up exercise to get more out of it. There's many ways that you can, you know, yank on those levers. And it doesn't have to, like, it really doesn't matter the type of activity somebody can do. Like it, it can be pickleball, <laughs> like you can, but, and it can be you making fun of pickleball. By, are you? I'm just saying it's it's <laughs> something where if someone was thinking about getting into shape or staying in shape, pickleball is probably not the first thing that comes to mind. But if you like pickleball, go for it. You can do it. You can start doing just a game per day. You can ramp that up to two hours per day if you have the time. You can do it seven days a week. You can start doing it with uh, with greater competition that makes you work a little bit harder doesn't matter what it is you can always scale it to a way that 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 moves you towards whatever the goal is that you ultimately have for yourself absolutely yeah okay so out of the book what are the things that you got from it that you think are worth repeating here yeah so the well the so there's the concept of the four horsemen and then that's you know explained in in great detail and i think very that's, dark a very dark way to express i know those diseases but darker than it just it would naturally be very in keeping with at all. peter atia's approach to things right <laughs> certainly um but then he goes on to explain the framework for what can you do about these things and clearly unsurprisingly it's focused on nutrition and mm -hmm. exercise and then he breaks down the exercise into the different modalities that should be included in anybody's plan and this is if the goal is longevity right so this isn't if your goal is to be 
a, an athlete for a specific sport or if your goal is to make it to the Olympics or some or be like be the best pickleball player in the city, then your training program is going to look different. But if you're training for longevity, then the tenets of that would include strength training. So you need to be lifting weights. Uh, VO2 max training, where you're pushing into sort of those maximum heart rate zones for a certain amount of time to increase your cardiovascular capacity. And then steady state exercise. So that's like the zone two type stuff at a lower heart rate for a longer duration that we've talked about multiple times before. And then stability training, which is training your nervous system to move properly with good technique so that you avoid falls as you get older and you know despite what you do you're going to lose muscle mass you're going to uh, succumb to some the effects of aging but you can continue to be independent prevent yourself from injury and and falls in your later decades so that's all built into the framework with lots of examples which i think is useful to for people to to read so that's nutrition exercise and then uh, it talks a lot about sleep. So again, super important as a, as a foundation for metabolic health and all the rest of it. Um, and so those are probably the, the major tenets. And then he kind of closes it out by talking about mental health. So it's sort of the, how do you balance this out with, there's no point in beating yourself up and protocolizing all these things in a really dry fashion and turning yourself into a longevity robot if your life sucks because you're depressed or you have anxiety or you've got other things going on that are super stressful and you're not able to enjoy yourself or you have unaddressed trauma from childhood that's been repressed and is causing issues. If you've got that stuff going on, which many, many people do, then you also need to deal with those things because not only do we want to keep our physical bodies in good shape to carry us through our later decades, but you want to enjoy the process and you want to be emotionally resilient and be available to provide support to your family members and friends and everything else. Yeah, I feel like uh, Peter Atiyah is going to lose a lot of people with the longevity lens because everyone wants to think about you know living longer, uh, and not succumbing to disease early. But when you when you talk about it in a way where it's not performance goals we're talking about here because performance goals can come at the cost of longevity to some degree. We're just talking about being able to squat when you're 90 or, you know, pick up a grandkid. And yep. that's all nice in theory. But no one really cares about that stuff until they're getting into their older years. Most people's goals are going to revolve around vanity and performance. The, those are the, they want bigger muscles. They want to lose weight. They want to be faster, stronger, these sorts of things. And that's most of the core motivation in anyone who's, you know, under the age uh, of 60. It's not until you get to the point where you really start thinking about the end of your life and you start having some health problems that uh, that that make you think about disease more than is probably healthy to, to think about psychologically, then you start thinking about longevity. But I would say that isn't uh, the majority of the audience that's going to even be interested in like listening to a podcast like this. Sure, longe longevity is a piece of the puzzle, but most of the people who are going to show up and go to a gym 
their goals are egotistical in nature. And I don't, I don't mean that in, in a negative way. It's just there's usually something that matters to somebody a little bit more than longevity. For sure. And I mean, I just using myself as an example. So yeah, you're not doing CrossFit because longevity is the, the ultimate goal for you right now. Well, that's not true. I, so I sure it is. That's, <laughs> yeah. So there are certain there. So I do CrossFit. There's aspects of it where I really enjoy the challenge of some of the technical aspects of the movements that come up in CrossFit, particularly the gymnastics stuff. I was not, you know, shockingly, I was not a gymnast as no a kidding. child. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, but there's certain things now that I can do in my later 30s that I was never able to do ever before because I focused on training it. And I just like the challenge of doing those things. So, you know, when I was able to do a ring muscle up for the first time, like just this year, I was really pumped about that. It was great. There's no reason why I would ever have to do a ring muscle up or similar movement when I'm 80 years old. So, yeah, for sure. That's just all about the performance aspect and the egotistical aspect, for sure. But at the same time, the the modality of CrossFit training, absolutely, there's strength work involved. There's VO2 max training involved. But there's not a lot of stability or mobility necessarily. And there's definitely no steady state, long endurance type stuff. So... I am cognizant of that and I fill those gaps by adding to my workout regime the zone two exercise, you know, a couple or three times a week. I add that in in addition to the other things that I'm doing. So at this point in my life, I'm not I'm not trying to get to the you know quarterfinals in the CrossFit Open, but I am actually trying to do things that are focused more on longevity and maintaining strength and performance as I age. Yeah, I guess what what I'm referring to is, while I can't prove it, I'm willing to bet that the best way for a person to live as long as possible is to do resistance training for no more than 20 to 30 minutes per day, and then probably do some significant walking Every once in a while, get into zone two, you know, get your heart rate up a little bit more and then just dial in diet. Like I know that the amount that I exercise is not going to make me live longer. If anything, it's going to do the opposite. And I know things like sarcopenia, the, the, the loss of muscle is a big health issue when you get into the aging population. But a bigger health issue than that is weighing 230 pounds of muscle and thinking you're going to live to your 90 plus. Right. Like you haven't seen any six to 230 pound, 90 year olds (laughs) roaming around society. In fact, I bet you're not going to find a, even someone 70 plus who's built like me. So I'd be much better off being 50 pounds less, even with less muscle from a longevity perspective. And this is kind of where I get into the conflict of, of, Sure, when the time comes, when I'm frail, I have trouble moving, I've got a bad heart because I've been so big for so long and I've done such intense exercise for so long, my brain doesn't work properly because I do things like contact sports, kickboxing, things that are not good for your brain. (laughs) When that day comes, I might live in some regret and think, hmm, if I could go back in time, maybe I would have done things a little bit differently. 
But even today, if I'm being honest, my priority as far as what I train for is if I ever had to get into a conflict with another human being, which the probability of is highly low, I could easily control that person and choke them unconscious if they were a danger to me and my family. Okay. Every every yep. weight that I lift, every like every jujitsu, kickbox, everything that I do is about being as invincible as possible in in that way. And a ton of that has to do with ego. A ton of it. And some of it has to do with just the unfortunate and luckily very occasional reality that there are dangerous people in the world and if you're not capable of being one of them you are much more capable of being a victim to the ones who are who are malevolent that's my driving force and i don't think about like if speaking of peter tia his whole model of you got to pick the goal you want when you're 90 and work backwards. So if right. your goal at 90 is you want to be able to pick up your grandkids, okay, well, let's scale that back decade, decade, decade. What does that mean to, for you today? What do you have to do today? You know, like nobody thinks yeah. like so you're that. you're like, okay, so I need to take a 72-pound kettlebell and be able to goblet squat that, right? So that, that's yeah. what so correlates. Today, yeah. and keep in mind, uh, not only with like Peter T. He is brilliant, not only in medicine, but he's a legitimate mathematician. So he's, and he's, he's a data a analysis and so, an engineer and a data analyst. Yeah. So he's so, looking yeah. at like, what day, what's, what weight do I have to be able to lift today in this way to properly like, and I'm sure he's done the absolute proper statistical analysis of, of what this means to the greatest amount of accuracy possible for someone in his position. But most people, as soon as you start talking about you're going to do this today, not because of what you want today, but because of what you want when you're 90. And you're going you're gonna to exercise today based off of this calculation that we've done of what you want to do. Like nobody, nobody well, is I, going to put that together well, and make a, it their a plan. a select group of people who I guess probably pay them a handsome amount of money in his practice. Oh, I can only imagine. Fully buy into it, right? So, and that that economic model works for him and he's got his following and obviously he's become super successful with it with what's his name, Chris Hemsworth and the whole I forget what it was called, Netflix long, yeah, yeah. longevity thing. You know, so obviously that that has resonated and then media has loved it because it's it's interesting and provocative. So, th yeah, that's where I there's definitely issues with the accessibility of this type of framework and this mindset. So you really do have to go into it with the lens of, OK, this is for somebody whose focus is longevity. And how do you set yourself up for that? If that's not your goal, if your goal is just, you know, what, I just want to be healthier. I just want to lose some weight, then great. Like you don't have to follow the entire framework, but that's not to say there's not still good learning and information that you could maybe walk away with by looking at this. I'm not trying to convince anybody to <laughs> to read it. I just wanted to talk about it. So it just plants these things in people's brains and lets them cultivate. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to be overtly critical because I love Peter Atia. I listen to most of the stuff he puts out there. and I've got a ton of value uh, out of, of what he's put into the world. But sometimes I just feel like, I guess you got to do what's interesting to you and you got to create things that interest you. And then whoever else is interested in that 
that's who you attract. And that, I, that is the best way to do things. Uh, but sometimes I listen to how he puts his information together in a way that he tries to create strategies and tactics for people. And I just think, like, who who are you going to find who's going to follow this path? I think a small number of very wealthy people. Yeah, and I think yeah. most of those very wealthy people are are aging, are, like, in the truly aging right. population. Uh, because let's, you know, let's pretend he's, he's Joe Rogan's physician. Joe Rogan doesn't – I'm sure he would like to live long. But clearly, he doesn't live a lifestyle that is designed around longevity versus like all of his current interests. And I think, you know, most people are, are in that boat of I have a goal right now and it has nothing to do with considering what I can and cannot pick up when I'm 95 years old. And if you can't get people to think a year ahead, you, it's, it's so hard to get someone to even commit to steps to get something six months from now or a year from now. Now make that 30 to 40 years down the line. Like, I don't think you understand human beings if you think. But I guess he he doesn't need a lot of people to buy in for whatever his business model is. Fortunately, and there are plenty of studies on this, it's it's typically never too late to start. So there's there's lots of studies on. By definition, it's never too late to start. On people in their 80s who start working out for the first time and learn how to squat and learn how to deadlift and they increase lean body mass they increase their grip strength they increase their stability and reduce their risk of falling all great stuff and they're already in their 80s so your your body still has the ability to adapt it's just not going to to the extent that it would when you're 25 so i mean for you you've I mean, you you probably have peaked in your muscle mass <laughs> at this point in your I life. I hope so. And it and it will be you know slowly downhill from here, but that's okay. But probably you will be happy that you had that amount of uh, starting point when you're you know when you're 65 or 70, and not totally frail. And goals will naturally change, and then you deal yeah. with. The I'm sure difference you'll still be able to show people are. out if you want. <laughs> Certainly. But, uh, just did you listen? Just uh, smaller people. See, yeah, exactly. Just uh, like eight other other yeah, uh, smaller seniors or, or older yeah, people in the yeah. lineup at 4 p.m. at the Mandarin. Um, Sam Harris just put out a, a podcast. I don't know if you listen to his stuff. But, I do. Uh, he had one. It's it was on on self defense. I only got oh, uh, partway yes, through. Yes, I can't remember that. Uh, the and guy he, who started uh, Straight Blast in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He had one with uh, with one of the Gracies at one point as well. But yeah, so interesting, interesting take on uh, you know basically promoting people should know how to handle themselves, and you know BJJ is probably the best way to. Uh, to do that well even just to operate like i don't care how how tough or how skilled you are like there's guns and knives in the world right and when it comes to that situation like it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter and the police aren't there right away right (laughs) so it's not uh, i'm not of this mindset where if you can teach yourself if you can learn those things and and be capable you're invincible from from all threats like what's most important is to be smart uh, and to be able to recognize uh, situations when something's not right and and to be able to act on those intuitions of time to get out of a situation and not not pro- prolong it to the point where you need to confirm. Which may uh, also promote longevity for you and your loved ones. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> but at the same time, and, and, and I don't know, maybe this has something to do with uh, – 
upbringing or childhood along, childhood along the way that I that I haven't really thought about all that much. But to me, there's nothing worse than feeling like the victim, and when there's a way that you can you can adapt to uncomfortable situations and you can upgrade parts of yourself where you don't need to walk through the world worried about being the victim of this that or the other and i'm sure it's a i'm sure it's both part the way that we put things out in the media but there's also clearly been a significant uptick in in violence even in a place like Canada. Just look at the amount of stabbings that have happened in the last four to five days around the country. It's crazy. Look at what's going on in Chicago right now. Like, I can't imagine being a resident of Chicago right now with what's happening there. It's so, like, things are going insane. And I don't want to go through the world, especially with children, constantly being nervous and afraid and I think a lot of people who who are the unfortunate malevolent human beings in the world who are actively looking to 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 seek harm uh, or or push harm on other people, I have to think that they're also gifted in recognizing who the victims are and who the most easily victimizable, I know that's not a word, but that's the one we're going to use, people are in society. And I just think, like, if you can get into shape and you're interested in, you know, losing weight and taking care of your health, why not allocate that time to something that makes you stronger, that makes you more resilient? And, you know, for lack of a better term, there's things you can do actively that make you more dangerous. Because if you're a good person uh, and you're looking to to – and you're looking to be that type of person purely to defend yourself uh, and potentially defend others. Like we need more of those people in the world without question. Uh, and I think, I think adults, um, particularly adult males and young adult males are becoming less capable uh, of, of, of taking care of themselves and those around them. Um, well, and, and police aren't even trained appropriately and how to safely take someone down. Yeah, I know. I know. Lots of forces are trying to change that here. Like yeah. in in London, I I don't really know how much I can talk about this, but there are there are people uh, that certain factions of of police departments are working with on a very regular basis who okay. are well trained in, in these in these different disciplines. My concern, <laughs> we're derailing the podcast here, but totally. my concern more is uh, is a police officer's inability to make the right quick decision in a dangerous situation because their number one concern is how's this going to look in the papers and there should be some of that like of course we want police officers to act responsibly but even in instances where it's it's truly self-defense where if you were in that situation you would want the ability to like taste somebody or or whatever the the circumstance is and then you have to worry about being sued and losing your job being smeared in the press not just by the typical people who would do that, but by the, your own police force can't, you know, have yeah. your, have your back anymore. Yeah. I'm more concerned about those things there, but getting back to what we were talking about, just, you know, everyone's, everyone's motivations for, for getting in shape are a little bit different and everyone wants to live long and live strong and be healthy and, and live out their last decade as healthy as possible. And maybe I'm, I'm taking my point of view and, and 
unfairly extrapolating that onto other people. But to me, I'm going to see where I'm at where I'm 90. And I'm going to deal with it then. And maybe that's you know, that's the outlook of regret where you get to 90. You think, hey, I should have thought about these things when I was 40. But it's just not my style. I got things I want to do now and I want to do what I want to do. And th- that'll change. And when it changes, I'll change the way I do things. But I, I And I'm, I've, I'm fully accepting of that. And I think the difference in, in your case is you've thought about it. Yeah, I You've actually thought about it. Whereas most people... Honestly, like the reason I want to have this conversation is to create awareness because most people just they haven't even thought about it. That you everyone knows you're getting older, but you don't think about what does that mean when I'm old until you get there. And so if you can think about that earlier and it meaningfully motivates you to do something, then that's great. Use that to your advantage. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to to throw in here to tie this up that's it man so do you think that that is a book that is is realistic for the average listener to read um i i think if i think if you're interested in in this content then for sure it's uh it's actually you know what i was super or maybe just start with the podcast and if you like what he's about then yeah maybe you'll yeah, naturally go pick up reasonable. the book i think uh like it actually reads really well he had um, a journalist co-write with him so it's like it it reads smoothly uh, and it's interesting. There's kind of a story. It's like his own personal story sort of littered throughout. So it's got a little bit of interest that way for those of you who like the, you know, the story aspect of nonfiction. I can't stand it personally. I just want to know the information. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's good in, in that regard. So I think it's, it's probably a reasonable, enjoyable read. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's ultimately it's not going to tell you what to do. And people don't like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, the, the name of the podcast is The Drive with Dr. Peter Atia. Uh, he's covered various topics over uh, the last five years, so it's worth checking out. Uh, and then if you want to get the book, get the book. Good? Amazing. Adjourned. The content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted. Huh? Transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.